Praise the Lord, I get to be here with you guys. Uh, we were here from 04 to 08, and uh, Christmas came early for the, the Leonard household. We were notified of what our next assignment's going to be. Uh, we are going to be staying here for the next two years, and I'm going to be teaching at ACSE, which nobody remembers the last time that a chaplain did that, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I'm very excited about this opportunity to teach. And uh, we're going to leave after church today and go to Missouri and join our girls for Christmas. So we're very excited about that as well. Uh, it was a great experience being with this congregation. Uh, I pastored the gospel service on base for four years. And on Sundays that uh, I was off, that we'd come out here and fellowship and kind of get filled back up and go back and do ministry. Uh, the colonel was saying before church, he'd never heard a chaplain preach poorly, and I have, so hopefully <laughs> you won't have that experience today. Um, I love Christmas. How many of you, how many are fans of Christmas? I love Christmas music. I mean, I have the, the tapes out usually in July. Uh, one of my favorite songs is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom, Captive Israel. That mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel. To you shall come Emmanuel. You know, the great thing about really old music, I don't know if you knew this, but really old church music, is it's probably trying to preach a message to you so that you can learn something about God. Uh, you know, modern worship, a lot of times we're responding to God. Old church music is usually trying to teach you something about Him. And what's interesting is these old songs often have these uh, minor chords and kind of this ominous sound to them. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of like this dark sound. How in the world is, uh, what were they trying to teach us about God with this kind of dark music and candlelight services in these big Gothic churches? And I think it was something about the mystery of what was about to happen. And, and what was brilliant about that is they took kind of this dark foreboding sound and somehow communicated a message of joy unexpectedly. And it always has that effect on me at Christmas time. When my daughter was very young, she's 21 now, which is really hard for me to believe, and I know what you're thinking. I look really good for my age, don't I? Uh, it's the baldness. Uh, when she was very young, she had this moment of rebellion. I sent her to her room, and I said, go get it worked out and come back out. And she came back, and she was sniffing, and, and I said, what happened? She goes, I talked to God about it, Dad. And I asked him to let me see me like he sees me, and to let me see where he was born one day. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but okay. And I filed that in the back of my head, and when she was about 17, I told my wife, I said, you know, I think God was talking to her in that moment, and I think we're supposed to take her to Israel. So for her senior trip, we took her to Israel. I know what you're thinking. I am the world's coolest dad. Uh, and I took her to Israel, and uh, we went to Bethlehem, and we got to see where Jesus was born, and it was an amazing trip. You know, growing up in this liturgical tradition that I was raised in, I love the Lenten season because, you know, just like that church in Bethlehem, they had these massive um, Christmas ornaments hanging from the ceiling, which was really weird, but it was also kind of cool. Just this sense that something is coming. And for a month, they'd light a candle every single week to say, Jesus is coming, and this means something. And I would say to us today, that is the thing that this season communicates to us, to, to us is that something is coming, but what does it mean? You know, when I was a, a young person, the message of redemption, I knew what it meant before I ever knew the definition. The definition of redemption is that God is here to save us. He's here to change us. 
And as we look at uh, the prophet Isaiah, he's here saying the same message to us. He's saying, and I need that old school reference. Can somebody read Isaiah 9-6 for me? Thank you. All right, so this is the text that we've been working through this month. I know Pastor Keith has has, uh, done a couple of these so far, and today we're talking about mighty God. And in this scripture, just to orient us, uh, when you see something repeated twice in a verse in the Bible, it's actually poetry. It's the way that the Hebrews did poetry. They didn't do a rhyming of words. They did a rhyming of ideas. And what they said to us in the beginning of this passage is, a son is born... A, ch- a child is born, a son is given. And Can you hear me now? Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> this seems to be a theme this morning, doesn't it? Uh, praise the Lord. So we, um, so anytime you see these two verses repeated, you have an echoing. I, I think I'm okay for right now, thanks. You have a chorus, and, and God is saying, pay attention here. This is really important. I am sending a son. I'm sending a child, and this child represents something that you need to know. And so then he goes on and he gives this list of the attributes of this child, you know. He says, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, which is very similar to the wording that we have for the Spirit of God. And he will be called um, Wonderful Counselor, uh, what's the next one? Mighty God, well, Mighty God we're on today. Uh, So uh, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now, when it says that the government will be upon his shoulders, it's this sense, it's this idea of a covering. Now, if you look at the story of Elijah, uh, in the, the Old Testament, Elijah, he had a mantle. And this mantle represented his authority, and it represented his anointing, and it represented his position as the prophet of God. And, you know, when I was in Jordan, I got a chance to actually go where they believed that Elijah was taken into heaven and, and kind of see this place where the whirlwind was supposed to grab him up into heaven. But before he went, he took his mantle and he placed it on Elisha's shoulders as a symbol that his role, that his blessing, that his authority was going to the other prophet. And this idea that the government would be upon the shoulders of Messiah is an idea that God was placing his authority on the shoulders of the Messiah. In fact, as we go through the list, every attribute of God is ascribed to Jesus, to the Messiah, to Christ. You know, he would be everlasting. He would be the Prince of Peace. He would have that authority. He would be a ruler. He would be mighty God. Now, I looked up in Hebrew what mighty God meant, and this is going to be a surprise for most of you, but it means mighty God. Actually, there isn't. 
I, I, just a little joke there. It, it really wasn't anything profound as I looked it up in Hebrew, but I looked at the three instances that mighty God is used in the Bible. So if you want to do something interesting when you're reading the Bible and you see a title of God, something that is describing God, see where it's used in other places, and it might teach you something about what it means for God to be mighty. And so that's what I did. I thought, you know, I don't usually do... Um, topical sermons or, you know, uh, two-word sermons, I'll, I'll take like a big passage because it's a lot easier to write, actually. And so uh, for you guys, I, I went home and I studied what the three passages in, in the Old Testament are that ascribe mighty God. Actually, there's four, but two of them are in Isaiah, pretty close together. So I'm going to say the three instances where we see mighty God is what we're going to be looking at today. In the first instance of mighty God, so uh, I'm going to give you a little background. Uh, Israel kind of understands who it is based on what God has done for them. As we look at the entirety of Scripture, Israel looks back to the great works of God and says, God is to us what he has done for us. Now, modern-day Jews and the Jews of the Bible, they they would describe their relationship with God in terms of the law. The law described the covenant with God, the deal with God. God said, you'll be my people and you'll be a blessing and you're going to follow these rules. And these rules were, you know, started with the Ten Commandments, and then they were uh, laid out through Moses, through the Levitical law, uh, through Scripture, the things that they would do out of obedience for God. Now, they would always look back to that one singular moment in time where God brought them up through the desert, across the Red Sea, destroying the, the, um, the Egyptian army behind them, and saving them for the promise of the new promised land of Israel. And they'd look back to that and say, this is what God has done for us. God is with us. Who can be against us? God is is so cool. He's on our side, right? We like to see that. We like to own that God loves us, that God is with us, that God has delivered us from something. Now, the Israelites had done that. They had come up through the Red Sea. I actually have a picture, and I, I wish I had the PowerPoint with me today. It's a picture of where Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan and Israel all meet there at the Red Sea. They've got this one little corner where there's the four borders, and it's about the place where they think that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and uh, were saved from the Egyptians. It's a a pretty amazing place. Well, now fast forward a few hundred years. They've settled into the land. They've adopted kings. And, you know, what happens with us when we've been delivered from God for a little while? I'm going to reveal a little bit of my theology, and uh, don't throw stones, just wrestle with it on your own at home when you get, get there, flip through your scriptures, hopefully not ones dependent on a, a, a battery. Uh, but one of the things that happens is we get delivered is sometimes, you know, as the scripture tells us, uh, as a, a dog returns to his vomit, uh, a fool returns to his folly seven times. We wrestle with the things that God has delivered us from, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it takes a lifetime to get chained up, and sometimes it takes a lifetime to unwind those chains in our lives. And I'm just being real here. Anybody that tells you that they don't sin anymore, uh, and I know there's some theology that says that doesn't happen anymore, but uh, the reality is they're just fooling themselves. We struggle as we go through this life. And if we don't own that struggle, it can have mastery over us. And the Israelites, they define themselves so much by their laws and so much by God's favor that they kind of lost sight of the fact that they had a responsibility to obey. 
And over time, they became so corrupt and so far from God, they became vulnerable to the enemies around them. And the Philistines, this group of people from the north, came in to invade their land and, and beat them up for their lunch money, so to speak. You know, they, they came in to take their resources and to, uh, to oppress them. You know, Israel kind of sits on a highway of the, the Middle East. Uh, the easiest travel plan from the north to the south is through Israel. And so they're getting invaded over and over again through the centuries from different neighbors. And when they're strong with God, they're strong against their enemies. And when they're weak with God, they're weak against their enemies. Does that not sound like our condition sometimes? They're weak against oppression when they're far from God. And the Philistines are coming down and they're beginning to attack them. And what's interesting here is you'll see this often in the Old Testament. The, the most righteous thing that's said in the passage of 1 Samuel in chapter 4 is from the lips of the Philistines, not from the lips of the Israelites. Is that not a little bit scary? They had become so corrupt that their priests were actually, and I, I'm sorry, I, I think the one kid that's here is mine, so I'm going to just be honest here. The priests were having illicit sexual relationships in the house of worship. That's how corrupt they'd become. And the Philistines come in to attack them, and they thought, God likes us so much. We're just going to take those Ten Commandments that are in that ark, and we're going to parade them before us, and they're going to be defeated because we've got our good luck charm, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's favor upon our life. And, and who can stand against us if we put God in front of us? And God was symbolized by this ark, this box, where they kept the Ten Commandments. And the Philistines saw that ark coming and they said, isn't this the mighty gods, they, they didn't even know how to describe it, that we heard about in the case of Egypt? And they were afraid. They were afraid of God, rightly so, because of God's great works. But the Israelites, because they were so accustomed to God's favor and so accustomed to their own sin, had gotten to the point where they became corrupted. And they misunderstood the nature of the covenant. The nature of God's favor isn't that we can take Scripture out there. and In this case, they quite literally took Scripture out there as a, a, a sort of a weapon to attack their enemies with. Think about that. They weaponized Scripture. It happened. It's in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Weapons of mass destruction. It happened very early in history. And even though the Philistines were afraid, God's favor had left Israel. And Israel didn't even know it because they had become so corrupt, and they were defeated in battle, and the worst possible conclusion came. The Philistines captured the ark. God is mighty, but we can get out of touch with that power because of our own sin. God has set us free. That's what he's done in the past. He's unchained us, but he's unchained us for a purpose. And if we allow sin to to come back into our life and to capture us, we lose that connection with God. We need to look back and remember what God has done in the past. The second use of mighty God happens in Isaiah, and it's in this verse that we've been talking about, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, where it says God is mighty, and it's ascribing the power of God. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the situation of Isaiah, because now we're about 600 years into the future from that previous problem with the Philistines, and what do you suppose has happened with Israel? They've continued to sin. They have continued to intermarry with the nations around them. They've continued to worship other gods. They've continued to water down their worship of God. 
And as they've gotten further and further away from their relationship and their covenant, God is saying, I have got to do something new. This is not working. These people are obstinate. You, know, you ever say that with your kids? You kids are hard-headed. Well, God says that with us. He's looking at his people and he's saying, you're missing the point of what it means to be in relationship with God. When God made a deal with Abraham, he didn't just say, I'm going to bless you. Wouldn't it be great if that's all that God said to us? He said, I'm just going to bless you. But he said, I'm also going to make you a blessing. In fact, in chapter 58, Isaiah will go on to say, and I was going to read it for you, um, that I have called you not just to obedience, but I've called you for a purpose, and that is to feed the, the hungry and to bring justice to the oppressed. Jesus would read that as the opening statement to his mission on this earth, that I've come for recovery of sight from the blind, to set the captives free. It's this idea that God has a higher purpose to his relationship with us. That a mighty God that we've encountered is calling us to become a part of a mighty mission on this earth. God sees the darkness of this world, and he doesn't just want to save you from it. I'm gonna, this is going to be very uncomfortable. Curl your toes in. This is why pastors have guest speakers. Did you know that? So we can say the things that they don't want to have to say. You are responsible to now be a part of that mission. That God wants you to feed the hungry. He wants you to give a place for the homeless to live. He wants you to set the captives free. He wants you to take the courageous stand against the oppression of this world, even though it might cost you something. We're not saved for comfort. We're not saved for increase. Some of those things come because of a relationship with God, and it's amazing. But the reality is we are called to give more than we did before God. This world is struggling. You know, the, the four biggest trends in the world is that people are moving outside of the cities from the rural, rural areas into the cities. 50% of the world's population lives in these mega urban areas. Most of them are just off the coast of uh, most of the major um, continents. And as they move into these urban, uh, urban areas, they don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. They don't have sanitary conditions. And so... The governments aren't able to provide from them, for them in a lot of these areas, and so criminals will come in and they will begin to recruit people that are, um, that are wanting, that don't have enough, that are oppressed, and they give them just enough to grab a hold of them and then use them for their purposes, to, to traffic women or to sell illicit drugs or to traffic guns. They become prophets of death and violence. And God wants to create in you a hope and a mission to go out and bring a different message. To evangelize a new type of good news. To help elevate them from those difficult situations. If you give enough to somebody else, it makes them less of a target for those that would use them for other purposes. Each one of us has a responsibility. I, have, I wish I had a picture to show you... Um, when I was in Saipan, there was some barbed wire on one of the hotels. And it wasn't to keep people out from breaking in. It was to keep the employees in because they had trafficked women there. 
and they were holding them hostage. I took a picture and I gave it to our investigative agency there in the Air Force so that they could go investigate it and hopefully put a stop to it. We cannot turn a blind eye to what is going on outside of our doors. What breaks God's heart should break ours as well. God did not just do something for us in the past, but he is calling us to do something in the present. He is a mighty God. And he is seeking to restore right now. This is what God is doing. He is seeking to restore and to make right the things that are broken in this earth. And we need to pay attention and we need to ask God, what can I do? The third case uh, that we see mighty God happens in Jeremiah. It's interesting because if we fast forward 300 years, or 200 years rather, Jeremiah is with all the other Israelites, but they're not in Israel. I'd like to say they took a nice vacation to Australia, but that's not what happened. Of course, we know that the Assyrians came in and they destroyed the temple and they took them all away wholesale to another country to be slaves in a land that was not their own. And as they're in captive, uh, captivity, they're longing to be set free. As we sing those Christmas songs that Messiah would come for uh, captive Israel and set them free, that's what it's talking about. A people living in captivity, a people living in slavery, longing for the day that they would be set free. Messiah represents the hope of their redemption, that they would be bought back with a price and that they would be allowed to go home to God's good promise and restored. And Jeremiah talks about a mighty God who would set them free. Jeremiah looks forward to the hope that there's something better in the future, the hope that God has something better for us around the next turn. And one of the things that I think we lose sight of as we struggle in this life life as Christians is that we forget what God has done in the past. We lose sight of what God is doing in the present, and we can't see what God is doing in the future. And these anchor points, if you will, are the things that God has given us to sustain us as Christians to live the Christian life. God saved you in the past. Do you remember the moment that God saved you, what he saved you from? I can remember I was 16 years old. I was on a street corner in Boise, Idaho, walking home from coffee, and I was completely and utterly lost. I came from a dysfunctional home with an alcoholic father. My parents were going back and forth whether or not they were living together. And uh, all of my friends were a mess. I was barely passing high school and getting into more trouble than I needed to because I didn't have anything to anchor me to life. And I found Christ in that moment. And I, I just looked up at heaven. I said, if you've got a better way, I will give you my life, Jesus. But there have been moments where I, I've struggled with that, where I've walked away, where I've turned my back on God. And, and I've gotten, maybe not unsaved, but a little bit lost on my way, if you will. And it's in those moments I have to remember what God's done for me to bring me back to a place where I can say, God, I know that you can do this for me again. And the second thing that God does is he says, okay, I'm going to open your eyes to what's going on around you because you need to get involved with the mission of Christ. Unless we can get involved with the mission of Christ that's going on around us, we're, we're going to struggle. 
We're going to struggle in our Christian faith unless we can continue to be a part of what God is doing. And and the reality is, there's a lot of people out there that are hurting, and, and we're going to struggle unless we can look forward and show people where God has taken us. What is our hope? You know, I've heard a story of, um, there was a North Korean pastor, and he was held for two and a half years in, in Korea. He would go, he went hundreds of times uh, bringing kind of aid and help to the North Koreans, and they, they looked online uh, to see what he was preaching about and found out that he was saying things like, the North Korean leaders aren't God. Seems like a pretty obvious statement, right? So they tricked him into coming back to North Korea, and they arrested him, and they put him into uh, a prison for two and a half years. And I think after the first year, they gave him a Bible, and he said, that Bible is what kept me alive. And, you know, obviously it wasn't the, the magic of the book itself, you know, although I think sometimes Christians treat it like a magic talisman, maybe like the, the Israelites treated those tablets and tabernacle like a magic talisman. No, it wasn't that. It was the, the message of hope inside the Scripture. It was the idea that if we can connect a holy God and he can save us, that there's hope no matter what kind of darkness is around us in that moment. We live in a world that needs that kind of hope. And you know what? The unfortunate thing is you may be the only person in your workplace or in your school or in your community that believes this. The, I think the, the Christian message has kind of been misrepresented or uh, people have gotten so enamored with what else is out there in the world that they've wanted to reject it. And so when I was growing up, when Pastor Keith was growing up, you know, the big narrative, the big story was everybody believed in God. Everybody you knew was a Christian. But that's not so much the case anymore. A lot of the people I know don't believe in God at all. And the hope that you have has got to be grounded on the truth of what Jesus is doing. It has to be grounded on the love that that truth is going to communicate through you to other people. And as you can communicate what God is going to do in the future, it will draw people to Jesus. We've got to remember what God's done in the past. We've got to remember what God's doing right now and be a part of it. And we have to point ourselves and others to what God will do in the future. God, rescue merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, for Christ our Lord and Savior was born on Christmas Day to bring us hope, to bring us life, and to bring us purpose. Let me pray. Father God, I just ask that you would help us to, to be grounded in the past, in the mission of the present, and the hope of the future. And I invite you to transform lives and hearts, God, either for the first time, if they're visiting today, to show people a mission and a purpose for their life if they've not gone beyond just salvation, but to understand what you placed them here for and what you want them to do. And help us to be reminded of your future, especially when we're discouraged or our sin is leading us astray. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.